only source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. The scripture reading this morning is uh, out of Exodus 40. In fact, it's the last five verses of the book of Exodus. It can be found on page 80 of your pew Bible. Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it, excuse me, fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. you would, please keep your Bibles open there to Exodus 40. We'll be referring to it. And uh, before we begin, let's pray. Ask God to get, grant His blessing to this. Dear Father, we come before You and we thank You for we are a people who are a people of the book. And so, Father, we thank You for this great book You've given us. We thank You for Your Word. And, Father, we pray that it truly would be a light into our feet and a a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And Father, we simply pray that we would cherish it and that we would follow it. And that, Father, people who do not know us, when they see us, would be able to see by our lives that we are a people who love your word and who cling to your word. Oh, Father, would you do that work in our hearts this day. It's in your son's name we ask it. Amen. About a month ago, I was in Mexico. I was sitting there, sweating, trying to read my Bible, somewhat tired, somewhat weary because I had been out of town two weeks before as well, and somewhat weary because I still hadn't unpacked every box in my apartment from a couple months before that, and somewhat weary because while I was trying to be a good Christian and read through Exodus in my morning quiet time, I'd just gotten through that section where it describes lampstand after lampstand, column after column about how they were coated in bronze or gold or whatever the case may be. And then I got to this section. I read this passage that we just read. I read about how the cloud descends and then hovers over the tabernacle, about how the glory of the Lord was so dense that nothing else could go in. I read about how the cloud and the pillar were going this way and that, and the people were following, and about how God was with his people throughout all their journeys. Throughout all their journeys. It says it twice in there, just in case you miss it. I read that and I said, I've got to preach this passage. My weary, meandering soul needs to preach this passage. 
Because you see, it reminded me of something that I already knew but tend to forget. It's probably something we all know but tend to forget. And that is that God's people are ever wandering, but His glory is everlasting. We all tend to forget that. We all tend to forget it, probably because we don't sleep on borrowed mattresses every week of our lives. But nonetheless, it's still true. We are an ever-wandering people. We don't like to admit it. We like to think we're permanent citizens here. We like to think that, but it's not true. I hate to tell you, but whether you've lived in your house for 50 years or a month, you're not a permanent resident there. If you don't believe me, just remember what Paul said to those Christians who are in the the great luxurious, for its day, keep in mind, the great luxurious city of Philippi. Did he say, yep, you guys are residents of Philippi? No, he told them that I don't care if you're citizens in the Roman Empire, which is no small thing, but your true citizenship is actually in heaven with the God of all glory. And it's that God in this passage who bursts back on the scene to remind us how glorious He is and how dependent we are upon Him. It's that God who comes to remind us of that. Because it's the only way to truly know oneself is to truly know one's God. And so in order to remind us what type of people we are and to remind us what type of God we have, let's look closer at Him. Let's look closer at that glorious God today because in this passage, He manifests Himself in part By showing us a measure of His glory. What type of God do we serve? What type of glory do we see in this passage? We get three pictures, three points. We see first a glory that dwells in verses 34 and 35. A glory that dwells. Second, we see a glory that directs in verses 36 and 37. And then lastly, thirdly, we see a glory that never departs. In verses 36 through 38. But first, let's look at that glory that dwells in verses 34 and 35. See, note in verse 33 here, which is right before what we read. It says that Moses finishes the work, specifically the work of the tabernacle. That follows chapter after chapter of detailed description of what's going on there in the tabernacle. Of its its very intricate blueprints, if you will. But... The end of that is not, not necessarily the end. It's actually a beginning. It's the beginning of the real action here. What's about to happen? Because in this verse, in verse 34, we see, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory comes down. It moves right into the center of town, right in the middle of the camp, into and over the tabernacle, as it were. Now, is this an exciting thing? Oh, yes. This would have been exciting to see. Is it mean that God is drawing near to His people, that He dwells close to them? Oh, yes, it means that. But is it also a fearful and awesome thing that's going on? Oh, yes. It's definitely that as well. We, we shouldn't read this and think that this is some uh, picture of God just coming for a stroll amongst His people. Oh yes, God is near to His people. His glory is near, but it's also unapproachable. See, this is more like God telling Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. This is more like God speaking from Sinai and then all of a sudden the people saying, Stop, we we can't listen to this. Let, let, Let us send Moses up there and he'll just tell us what you say. We don't want to listen to this anymore. 
Or it's like the picture of Isaiah when he sees the Lord high and exalted. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And then all of a sudden he says, Woe to me, for I'm undone. Which is to say, I'm lost. I'm, I'm a dead man. That's the picture we should have here. Oh yes, the glory is near. But it's also unapproachable. and It's also a fearful sight. Because here in this passage, when the glory fills the temple, nothing else can fit. Nothing else can fit in there. Moses can't even go in. That's happened before in Exodus. In Exodus 24, verses 15 and 16, the cloud, same cloud or very, very similar cloud, comes and it covers Sinai. Moses has to wait until God says, come on up here before he can go into the cloud. See, this is a little reminder for us that if Moses, if Moses, the great covenant mediator, the one who brought the Ten Commandments down from the mountain himself, if even he can't take approaching God lightly, if even he must not assume it's as easy as walking into Walmart, even he can't do that, then what does that mean for us? How should we, who are born sinners at enmity with God, how should we think that approaching God is an easy thing? See, here we have to remember once again, God does show that He's near. But you want to come near? Then God dictates the terms. It's not, it's not your choice, it's God's who can come near. God dictates the terms. Blood must be shed, so don't approach too quickly. Not unless you have a a shield, a source of protection, some type of covering upon you. You know, I I made a similar mistake once, approaching something too quickly. You see, I worked at a Christian camp once where there was a petting zoo. It's kind of interesting. And amongst the pettable animals there were a few snakes. And some of those snakes were actually pretty friendly. But then there was the brown racer. Now, some of you might know what that snake is, and you realize that it's not necessarily a very big snake, it's not necessarily a very dangerous snake. He's kind of poisonous enough to kill a rat or something like that, but not enough to kill a human, not enough to hurt a human. So, I mean, he's not a big snake. He's not dangerous. But boy, is he fast. And boy, did he not like people, this particular one. And so he was the one that liked to bite fingers that we just sort of, you know, left off to the side and didn't necessarily let the little kids pet him just kind of stayed in his aquarium or terrarium or whatever you call that thing and waited until the next rat or lizard came along for him to eat, waited till dinner time. But you see, I, uh, I've always been kind of a curious person. And I just sort of wondered if I'm really careful, if I'm, if I'm really gentle, if I approach him just right, will I be able to touch him to kind of, you know, show everybody else that, listen, this snake's not so bad. You just have to do it the right way, you see. I mean, it's just like the baby boa constrictor. He'll let you pet him. If you approach the, the brown racer the right way, it'll be okay, too. So I, I opened the cage, and I put my finger in there, and I'm like, if I just do this really slowly, then he surely won't bite. It turned out badly, I'm sad to say. You see, I had thought... I thought the brown racer was a certain way, but I was wrong. He wasn't like I thought. I thought he was safe because he was familiar to me. I thought he was safe because he was familiar. And sadly, I think some of us treat God the same way. Has, has he become too familiar to you? Has his grace become so familiar, so familiar that it doesn't shock you? So much so that it's not amazing, it's just common? 
So much so that you think your sin in some small way doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit quite as much anymore. So much so that it doesn't really grieve or convict you. If so, be careful. Because God is near. He dwells among His people. But He's also holy. God dwells among His people, but He's still God. And He still needs to be feared. Do you want to come near? Then God dictates the terms. If, if you'll notice in Leviticus 1.1, that's on the very next page, very next verse from what we've read, God finally says to Moses, come in. He lets him come near. And when he does that, he tells him what sacrifices that the people need to bring if they want to continue to come near. You know, most of those sacrifices are bloody sacrifices. There's a message in there. God is near, but approach with caution. Because that's what a glory that dwells looks like. So there's a glory that dwells, beware. But we also see a glory that directs in verses 36 and 37. Let's read that again. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. The cloud reminds them to approach slowly and to fear, but it doesn't say to flee. The crowd says fear, but it doesn't say flee. It actually says follow. Pardon me. It says follow because God's people can trust him even if they can't predict him. God's people can trust him even if they can't predict him because you see that here in his people. If the cloud moves, they move. If it stays, then they stay. If it turns to fire in the middle of the night, they still don't take their eyes off of it. They trust this cloud, even though it has no discernible pattern. Imagine for a moment how that must feel. How it must feel to trust something that you can't predict. Imagine if you were. You know, we read about this cloud other places in Exodus through Deuteronomy. Imagine how it would have felt if you were one of the ones following this cloud. Imagine one of those father-son conversations while you're waiting for the cloud to move. Instead of a, you know, are we there yet sort of feel to that conversation, it was probably, I'm guessing, a bit more like this. Dad, when are we going to leave? When the cloud leaves, son. But but when's it going to leave? When will the cloud leave? When God wants it to. Well, when is he going to want it to leave? I don't know, son. So, how do we know when to leave? When we see the cloud move. So what are we going to do until then? Well, son, I guess we should watch the cloud. Imagine how frustrating that would have been, especially to a little kid. Or imagine as well, if that doesn't paint the picture clearly for you, imagine what a diary entry might have looked like for one of these people as they're going place to place, they're waiting for the cloud to tell them where to go. Imagine it was probably something like this. Day one, cloud settled in the middle of nowhere. Guess we're going to unpack now. Day two, cloud still hasn't moved. We're just waiting around. Day three, cloud still not moved. Still waiting. Kind of getting bored. Day four, uh, still hasn't moved. We're kind of wondering if it's time to do laundry. But so-and-so over there said that maybe the laundry won't dry before the cloud moves again. So we don't know what to do. Is that frustrating? Probably. But keep in mind, this is the Lord, whom Exodus 34 says is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. No, this is not a God who lets you look at his daytimer, but he's merciful. 
He's gracious. He's overflowing in faithfulness. Does this sound like a God who's going to lead you to your ruin? Does it not instead sound like a God that we can trust? Yes, we can trust this God. Yes, we can. It doesn't mean necessarily that He's going to give us a schedule. It doesn't mean He's going to tell us today do this, tomorrow do that, next week, next month, and so on. It doesn't mean that. With this God, often it's day to day. Sometimes we have to ask for daily bread and daily guidance. And now to some people, you're hearing that and you're like, hey, that's kind of exciting. Some of you are thinking that's kind of stifling, actually. And that's, that's a little claustrophobic in a sense. Some of you might be vacillating between both. Those who are free spirits probably think this is great. Oh, it seems like this God only gives his people a nudge from time to time. It's not necessarily the case, but it might be the way it seems. You know, I've met a lot of young people and old people like that here and elsewhere. But you know, it's kind of funny, specifically with, say, the younger crowd. When, uh, let's say, senior year rolls around, or maybe when the finances of mom and dad get cut off, they're sort of wanting that sense of predictability, aren't they? They're sort of wanting to know what comes next. You, you've seen it. People start asking them questions, saying to them, you know, so what happens after senior year? And all of a sudden, they're starting to want to know, too, what happens after all of that. The five-year plan to get married and have kids, or the plan to get a top job, or the plan to travel somewhere exotic after graduation has sort of hit a little bit of a snag. And all of a sudden, the only way to kind of get things back in order is to find a new plan or something like that. You know, I, I heard a retreat speaker once talking to a bunch of college students, and he said, you know, at this point, what most of us want, when we get in that stage where we don't know what comes next, next week, next month, whatever, we kind of want a letter, a letter straight from God that'll sort of map out the rest of the future for us, or at the very least, the next crucial stage in life. And something like this, dear John, this is God. I know you've got a confusing road ahead, so I'm here to help. In three months, you're going to meet Jane Doe. You guys are going to hit it off. Your friends will probably think she's too good for you. But in eight months, you'll be engaged. In another eight, you guys are going to be married. Now, before that, of course, you're going to find your dream job. It's only going to be 10 minutes from where you currently live. And if you want to hint as to what it is exactly, just look at page 756 in the yellow pages. In the meantime, I'll let you do yourself for a while, but when it's time to name your first kid, you'll most likely hear from me later. I hope you don't think that's too irreverent. I hope some of you are out there thinking that's absurd, because it is absurd. But <laughs> all the same, there's some of you out there who are like, I, I kind of like that letter. Do you, do you have one of those with my name on it? Where, where'd you get that? And those of you who are laughing are probably the ones who are wanting that letter. But we all know that God doesn't work like that. He doesn't, he doesn't send us the letter. He wants us to trust Him. He doesn't want us to outsmart Him or outmaneuver Him somehow. He wants us to trust Him. And it's important to note, I think, that in the midst of all that, it doesn't mean that God is somehow against planning, that He condemns all efforts at planning our future or something like that. He's not against staff meetings. He's not against financial planning workshops things like that. God is not against planning. He doesn't condemn planning. But God is fiercely opposed to you making a God of your plans. You might be sitting there thinking, well, that's great, but how do you plan without making an idol out of your plans? How do you do that? 
Well, maybe that means you need to be open to changing them, but it still doesn't solve every little conundrum there. You're, you're still probably wondering, yeah, but when do I change them? There's, there's no cloud to tell me how to do that. And you know, that's true. In some ways, the Israelites almost had it easier than us. Because we don't have a cloud over the church going this way and that. It's not over our cars. It's not over the house when we get home to show us what we need to do. But, you know, if you are a Christian, and it's a side note, I realize there are some here who aren't. And if you're hearing this and if you're wondering, how do I get this peace and security that he's talking about that we're going to describe in a moment? It's important to know that it is available. As Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Be reconciled to God. But once again, if you are a Christian, no, you don't have a cloud, you don't have a little white angel on your shoulder telling you what to do, but you do have God's Holy Spirit dwelling within you. God has not left you alone. He has given you His Spirit and His Word. And His Word tells us that if we trust in the Lord, there is no cloud, but there is a faithful God who's directing us, who says that He'll guide us, whom we can trust. But you're still probably wondering, well, how does that work? I would submit to you a simple passage, Psalm 37, 4, which says, Delight yourselves in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, as a friend of mine likes to say, make sure you're doing that first part first. Make sure you're delighting. Because if we're doing that, He's promising to give us the desires that will lead us where He wants us to go. So what does that mean? That means, do you love God? Do you want to serve Him in a rare, specialized field somewhere? Well, then maybe it's time to start investigating which programs, which colleges might equip you best, or which job might be best for you if you're past that stage in life. And if it's the college route, which one can you afford or your parents afford? Maybe you say to yourself, well, I love God and I want to get more involved in the church. Well, good. Then ask yourself, where does his church need service? Where could I serve? Where is there opportunity? What are the minimum qualifications to do that? A lot of times we overthink this. We make it complicated. When really they're fairly simple questions we should ask to ourselves. What are my desires? What are my gifts? What are the opportunities before us? And where are the needs of God's people? We often overthink it. And if you're like that, if you... Ask yourself so many questions. Well, should I do this or should I do that? And you find yourself perplexed by all of that. There's a book I think you should read. I recently saw it. It recently came out. It's called Just Do Something. How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers. I have no idea what that means for the record. Writing in the Sky, etc. Believe it or not, with a title like that, it also has a subtitle. (laughs) A liberating approach to finding God's will. If you find yourself in that route, I would recommend that book, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. It's a fairly simple method. It's being espoused in both instances. Delight yourself in the Lord. Let Him grant the desires that should lead you where He wants you. Once again, simple questions. What are your desires? What are your gifts? What are your opportunities? Where are the needs that you see before you? There's no letter, there's no cloud. You're simply called to delight yourself in the Lord. Try that. See if trusting Him isn't a little bit easier. So we approach with caution because the glory that dwells burns with holiness. But we also follow because the glory that directs is trustworthy. 
But there's another image here. We're not done yet. The last image is that there's a glory that never departs in verses 36 through 38. See, first we've seen that the glory comes and dwells in these tent-dwelling nomads, the Israelites. They've never seen fireworks so good. And then there's this glory that directs. All of a sudden, these nomads have a compass, a map, as it were. But that's not the best part. The best part is that the glory stays. It doesn't leave. It's there on Monday. It's there on Tuesday. It's there on Thursday and Saturday. It's there when they're in the Red Sea and they need some help. It's there when they're at Massaba and Meribah and they whine worse than your two-year-old has ever whined. It's always there. And oh yeah, in the midst of their journeys, the good sandals might get left behind. The gold bracelets might get misplaced. They might even not be able to find the good roasting pot along the way. But the glory of God is never something that's going to be left behind. Because it's not up to them to pack it. Because God makes sure that it goes before them throughout all their journeys. Throughout all their journeys. It says it twice, in case you forget. Even if it's dark, the cloud burns to be able to light the way for them at nighttime. It never leaves. It doesn't leave when they grumble about their leader and his supposed shortcomings. It doesn't leave when they complain about not having any food. It doesn't complain, it le- excuse me, it doesn't leave when they complain about having the same old food. It never leaves, never departs. Now there are some of you right now who are, who are probably saying in the back of your head, well, You say it never leaves. You say it never departs. You say it's with them throughout all their journeys. What about that whole incident in the book of Ezekiel when the the glory cloud actually comes over the tabernacle and then it goes away as a a sign of judgment against God's people? That's, That's a good point. And some of you are probably thinking about that whole Jewish exile thing. What about that? And you know, those are, those are good things, good questions to raise. But I would submit to you, but that Even with that story in Ezekiel, maybe it's not the glory of God departing, but the visible sign of His glory departing. You know, even if I'm wrong, even if I'm wrong, there's more to the story than that little story in Ezekiel. Because the glory comes back. The glory comes back in a a fuller, better way. The glory comes back. It's embodied in a person. The Word, the one who was with God and was God, becomes flesh in tabernacles amongst us. And that Lord of glory leads captives out of exile. He goes to Egypt and back, walking where Israel walked, never having a place to rest his own head, but promising to prepare a place of rest for us. He walked where Israel walked, fulfilling the law that we couldn't, dying the death that we deserved on our behalf, calling all of those who are weary and burdened by all sorts of loads to come find rest. And so because of this son's bloody sacrifice, God says, come boldly. Come with reverence? Oh, yes. But come boldly with access to the throne of grace. And note once again, he calls the weary. He doesn't call those who've got it all together. He calls the ones who want a better home and a better country. Brothers and sisters, that better country, it might not have room for all the stuff we have here, but there will be treasure there and there will be a feast. There won't be crying there, but there will be joy. There will be everything you need and nothing you don't. Everything you need 
Now, you know, I, I moved recently, as some of you know, and, and with moving, you often feel like you don't have everything you need because there's the unpacking and the confusion and, and the disorganization that all of that brings. And, you know, in the midst of all that, there's been a per- person at my apartment a good bit has been doing a lot of cooking. And whenever, in light of that, when something gets lost, I kind of assume that it's not my fault that something got lost, of course. It's, you know, somebody else's fault. And so one day I'm sitting there, I'm doing a little bit of cooking, I'm probably cooking Uncle Ben's, and I look down at the box and I see I need two and a half cups of water. So I'm like, okay, I need to find my measuring cup. Where's the measuring cup? So I'm digging through, I'm looking for it. I can't seem to find it. I I started looking, and, and after the usual places, I looked in this drawer, I looked in that drawer, I looked in the, the dish dryer rack, uh, you know, that's by the sink there. I looked in the dishwasher. I started looking in places that made no sense to look at, places that were absurd. And after it all, I'm concluding that there must have been some crazy person who moved the measuring cup. Getting just a little bit flustered, of course. So I did what came natural. When I saw the cook again, I interrogated the cook and I said, where's the measuring cup? Where, where is it? You know, the one with the lines on it, the one that, you know, you can measure it out exactly and all of that stuff. I can find the other ones. I can find the little one cup, half cup deals, but I can't find the, the good one, the big one. Cook looked at me, kind of laughed a little and said, you don't have a measuring cup like that. You might have had one in your old apartment, but you don't have one here. And I felt a little humbled. And I realized that my mistake was that, not that the measuring cup was misplaced, but that the measuring cup never made the move. It got left behind. It's probably in my old apartment still. My old roommates are probably still using it. Measuring cup got left behind. You know, that was my mistake. The measuring cup got left behind. But you know the funny thing? When I moved amidst packing and unpacking and driving and going to Florida, going to Mexico and occasionally going crazy, the God of all glory didn't get left behind. He didn't get left behind because it wasn't my responsibility to pack him. He didn't get left behind because he never leaves and never departs and he never will. He's always with me and always with all of God's people throughout all their journeys. All their journeys. You know, he never left Israel and Egypt to waste away their lives in cruel slavery. He never left them when they were at the Red Sea. He didn't leave them after that whole golden calf incident. Never left. See, God's glory, it came to dwell amongst his people. And it came to direct his people. And it came so that it might never depart from God's people. You one of God's people? Not all of you here are necessarily one of God's people. But remember, if you're not sure, he beckons the weary, the ones with baggage, the ones who are loaded down with all sorts of past they don't want to talk about. He beckons those to come to him and find rest. Beloved, if you are one of his people, rejoice, because your great God promises never to depart. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your awesome love to us. We thank you that you have sent your Son not only to dwell amongst us, but to die for us, to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we dare not think about, to die a death in our place that enables us to one day have life with you, a life that will never end. 
And Father, it's because of your Son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away